to, at that point, they had to rearrange the mission. Uh, A moon landing, a surface lunar landing, was no longer part of something that they could achieve. But they still had the piece of, can we bring this crew back to Earth again? Uh, can, Can we complete the part of the mission of bringing our astronauts safely home? That's what everything we rearranged towards. So as this Odyssey command ship was slowly starting to fade because all the systems were damaged, the astronauts had to climb into the lunar lander and sort of close themselves off in there. They had to use the rockets and the thrusters of the lunar lander to readjust course. And there wasn't enough there for them to actually turn around and come back. They had to stay on track towards the moon, orbit the moon, and use the moon's gravity to slingshot back to Earth, using the lunar lander to do that. Then the hope was, when they got back towards Earth, that they could hopefully restart just the essential instruments inside the capsule so that they could safely re-enter the atmosphere and splash down in the ocean, which they did. NASA ended up characterizing that mission as a success, even though they never landed on the moon, because in the midst of a catastrophic failure, they were able to reroute the mission to bring it to its completion of bringing those astronauts back home again. So mission, in that sense, shows us something of adjustment, how missions need course correction along the way. And this one is no different that we see here in what Luke writes in these opening verses of Acts about mission. So let's consider a little bit of how that works. Mission. Here's what I want us to see in this passage in particular. I want us to see how Jesus is, as I'm calling it in the title to this message, recommissioning. It is a recommission because the disciples needed a course correction. They needed a course correction. I want us to pick pick that up out of this passage because it's still relevant for us today as well. Where does it come in this passage in Acts? It comes in the question that the disciples ask, if you were catching that as we read through it. Right there, they're going out. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's giving them his final great commission. And the disciples ask one question. One thing they ask. It's in verse 6. Then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, let's think about that one for just a minute, okay? Think about this. In the mind of the disciples, what do you think their idea is of the mission? What do they think the mission is at that time? In that question, what's buried in there? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They had no idea what was about to take place. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. They didn't see that one coming. What is it that they saw coming? They thought, Jesus, you did it. You beat the grave. It's hero time. It's time to get rid of the Romans. 
It's time for the nation of Israel, your people, to again be the greatest nation on earth, that we are the rulers. That's what they're looking for. That's their idea of mission. That's what they thought the mission was about. It's all buried in that question, and and it's not the first time for them. It's not the first time something like that has come up. Because you you read examples throughout the Gospels where, on occasion, Jesus catches the disciples arguing, arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And they're having these arguments. On another occasion, it's it's one of uh, it's it's one of the mothers of James and of the disciples, James and John, who who approaches Jesus and says, "Jesus, I want you to do this for me. That when you restore your kingdom." Let my boys sit at your right and at your left. Give them the most powerful seats in your administration when that happens. It's not the first time. Jesus needs to give a course correction, a a recommissioning, because at this point yet, his disciples still don't get it. They think the mission is about restoring an earthly kingdom to them. How can we capture that in maybe just a few words? What is it that they're really after? If we're going to say, what, what do they think the mission is about? I think I would, I would capture it in, in two words. Kingdom power. They are looking for kingdom power is what they're after. They're not the only ones. I think stories like this are, are preserved in Scripture to show us, maybe in a way that, um, that we look in a mirror and see a little something of ourselves in that. Kingdom power. During the medieval times, right, the, the Middle Ages, times when uh, the only organized church that was around was, was uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And the Roman Catholic Church in Europe seem to struggle a bit with grasping at a mission of kingdom power. It's one of the things that prompted the Reformation to break free of the corruption that went along with this grasp of kingdom power that they saw taking place at that time in those days. If you're... um, if you're someone who listens to podcasts, you're into catching podcasts as they come down, there's, there's a podcast that uh, the last couple years has been uh, rather popular that's been put out by Christianity Today, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's about the collapse of a megachurch out in Seattle, a megachurch whose founding pastor embraced and promoted a mission of kingdom power. And when all the abuse and scandal that went along with that mission started to come to light, that church fell apart, collapsed. It's not just the disciples. It's not just periods of church history throughout. It's around us today as well. In 2016, a a candidate for political office going around the country, stopped at Dort College, if you're familiar with Dort College, a small Christian college in northwest Iowa, college affiliated with us, with the Christian Reformed Church. 
And this candidate on that stop to that college said these words, and I quote, And by the way, Christianity will have power if I'm there. You're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. End quote. We're still captured by something of a mission of kingdom power. It draws us in. It wasn't just the disciples. It's not just those who went before us. This is speaking to us today yet as well. So let's consider a recommission, okay? Let's consider what it is that Jesus says in response to this question. How does he recommission his disciples at that time to say, wait, 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 wait. This is not about a kingdom power. It's about something else. What is the answer that he gives? Well, I think it's not by mistake that Jesus answers the question and calls it out. Power. So, you want power? Let's talk about power. And he does that in the answer that he gives. Look at how he says that in this response that he gives in verses 7 and 8. He said, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power for what? What's the next line? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, so you want a mission of power? All right, let's talk power. Because I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, there's power. But it's not kingdom power. You will be witnesses. That's the mission. That's what I'm calling you to, to be a witness. And the Holy Spirit will give you power to do that, to be a witness. This past spring at Calvin University, the the retiring university president, Michael Leroy, gave the commencement address, and, and he made reference to this passage in that commencement address. He framed it in the context of heroes when he talked to the graduates, saying, yep, everybody loves a hero story, and and it may be that, especially on a graduation day, you're graduating college, and it's time to go be a hero. Take on the world. But rightly called out the contrast that comes before us in a passage like this, that we are not called to be heroes. It's not where the Holy Spirit equips us to be powerful, to be heroes. We're called to be witnesses. That we are equipped as God's people in this world to bear witness to Christ and to what Christ has done and to how our lives are changed because of what Christ has done in us and through us. That's where our mission guides us. That's, that's where Jesus is recommissioning, course-correcting his followers in a passage like this to help them to see it's not about being the hero. It's not about the kingdom power. It, it's, it's about being witnesses. Let's consider that then. What, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to be people who have a mission of being witnesses and how that takes shape? 
I think the automatic answer is, well, we talk about Jesus. We tell people about Jesus. And you read the stories of Acts, and you see that over and over again, don't you? You see them telling the story of the gospel, telling people about Jesus. I want us to consider all the stories that weave alongside of that, that go along with that message that they give. Because it's not just in the words that they give witness, but they also show that witness in how they live and in who they are and how they arrange their lives together. So as we consider that and what that looks like for us, think about what that means for us to have a mission to be witness because we in in the Reformed Church, in the Reformed tradition, we talk about, and we use this word, vocation. That no matter what it is you do, that God is giving you something in your life that gives witness to him. Not just in what you say, but in what you do, in how you live, and in who you are. That we are called and set aside as people with mission to give witness to Jesus. All right, uh, let me highlight a few of these. All right, first one comes in Acts chapter 3. Acts 3. That in Acts 3, this takes place right after Pentecost that you see this happening. And this is where Peter and John go to the temple and they find a man there who's, who's crippled and laying by the side of the temple gate. And in the name of Jesus, they tell this man to get up and walk. And he's healed and he creates this commotion around because everybody knew this was the guy who just sat there and begged. And now he's jumping around. So they find out it's Peter and John, and they call them, and Peter and John give testimony. They say, you think we did this? No. We're not the ones who have the power to do this. It's because of Jesus. They give witness to Jesus in that event by helping someone who needed help in that moment. A couple chapters further, further, this comes in Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, you find that the the church leaders are appointing deacons. So what happens by the time you get to Acts 6 is the community of believers is growing and they begin to discover that, you know what, there are several people within our community who have some of these ongoing needs and we need to address this. We need to care for these people. We need to help people however we can. So it's in Acts 6 that the church for the first time sets up and establishes deacons. People in the church set aside with the task to care for the needs of those around them, both within the community and outside of the community. That they care for those around them as a way of bearing witness to the care of Jesus when they do that. It gives witness to Jesus when they care for the needs around them couple chapters forward, this one is in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, you find a story where uh, Peter and John go to Samaria. Samaria is that part of Israel where they kind of saw the people there as half-breeds. They tried to avoid them. You, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? It, it's that part of Israel where they, the, the real Jews who thought themselves the best of the Jews avoided Samaria. Peter and John go there because they hear that people in Samaria are accepting the gospel and they're being baptized. So they go there and Peter and John go there and they begin laying their hands on the people who are joining their community and the Holy Spirit comes on them. 
Now, there's this other individual in this town in Samaria who is, you can read about this in Acts 8, who's a sorcerer. He sees this happen, and he says, ooh, power, I want that. This sorcerer goes to Peter and John and says, hey, that thing you do where you put your hands on people and they get this Holy Spirit, I'll pay you money if you show me how that works. I'll give you money if you can give me that power to do that. Peter immediately rebukes him. He says, that's not what this is about. It's not about our own power. But this gives witness to Jesus, to his power. You see something there of the witness that shows up in that story. A couple chapters later, this one happens in Acts chapter 11. In Acts 11, it's the church in Antioch which is growing the fastest. And at the same time, it's the church in Jerusalem that is persecuted the hardest. So the church in Antioch, separated by quite a distance, says, you know what? Let's help out our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So they take up the offerings and they send aid. They send aid to Jerusalem, not not their own family, not within their town, but, you know, these are strangers who live in a whole other part of the country and we don't know who they are, but you know what? We hear they have need. We hear that they are in trouble and you know what? We can help. We've got resources. We can bless them with what we have. So they send aid to Jerusalem to help them out. And they give witness. They give witness to what God is doing in their church in Antioch by the overflow of aid and help that they send out to others. One more. I'm going to flip ahead to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is a story that's known as the Jerusalem Council. So this is where a bunch of the elders from the churches all gather in Jerusalem because they're having an issue that that they can't resolve. And the issue is all of these non-Jewish people are accepting the gospel. They're coming to faith in Jesus. They're being baptized. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. But these non-Jewish people don't know or understand any of the Old Testament Jewish customs. So the Jewish Christians, the apostles... They believed in Christ, they followed Christ, but at the same time, they were still keeping all their Jewish regulations too because they were born and raised Jewish. You know, all the dietary rules about what you can eat and cannot eat and all those things that follow that you read about in the Old Testament. This became a rather wedge issue. So in Acts 15, they say, all right, let's get all the leaders together and let's talk this one through because we've got all of these non-Jewish believers now who don't keep all of our rules. They don't keep all of our customs. They don't follow our cultural values. What are we going to do with that? And at the end of the Jerusalem Council, it's the elders who say, you know what? Maybe we need to accommodate our culture and our customs to make room for these Gentile believers who don't know our culture and they don't know our customs and they don't know our values, but they're coming to Christ in faith, maybe we need to make room to accommodate that. That we shouldn't have to force everyone 
to follow all the same rules that we follow when we come together in faith. And it bears witness. It bears witness to the way that God accommodates, that Jesus made himself one of us to accommodate to our level that we might be saved. Not just the words that they say. We see this now. It's not just the stories again and again of standing on a street corner and preaching the gospel. But witnessing, being a witness, showed up in how they lived, in what they did, in how they treated one another. How does this work out for us then? Let's think about this. Think about how this shows up in our lives in some way. What does it mean for us to be witnesses in that way? The mission. It's a mission that, yeah, we see recommissioned here in Acts, but, but it's a recommissioning of a mission that had always been in place. This comes from Genesis 12. Uh, Genesis 12, this is the story of Abraham receiving the first covenant promise from God. It says this in Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and here's the mission, you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. The mission. A mission that started way back in Genesis. It was way back in the beginning. A mission that comes forward, and a mission that Jesus is giving a course correction here to say, I want you to be witnesses to that. Witnesses to the way that you are being made a blessing. You will be a blessing in who you are and in how you live so that when people see that, they see the blessing is actually a blessing from God, of God. Let me wrap this up by maybe just making a few suggestions of So how does this actually play out for us in our lives and in who we are? If you think through, what does it mean for me to live that way? Someone who lives as a witness, not just in the words I say, but in how I live and in what I do. Students, uh, those of you who go to school, you know that one of the major issues that, I mean, you deal with in school is friendships, relationships, all right, who's a part of my friends and, and who's not, and who do I get along with and, and who don't I get along with? And so much time and energy in school is spent on trying to navigate friendships and relationships, right? When, when you treat others the way that you want to be treated, right? when, when you act as a friend to somebody else in a way that says, I would like my friends to act like this to me, When you act like that, you give witness. Witness to the kindness and goodness of Jesus in living like that. For those of you who are maybe a little older and you work a job and you have a career, you you go to work every day, but when you go to work and you show up and, and you act with honesty and integrity and seek to do the right thing, 
When you do that, you give witness to the honesty and integrity of God by seeking to emulate that in how we live. Those of you who uh, are parents and bring up kids, you know that parenting, I mean, it takes a lot, but in particular, it, it takes a whole lot of patience and it takes a whole lot of giving. But patience and generosity bear witness. Witness to the patience and the generosity of our God when we live in that way and point to God in that way. Those of you who are maybe uh, finding yourselves in the retirement years and everything that goes along with that, maybe the story becomes one of caring for spouse, family member, loved ones, friends who, who deal with failing health in some ways, whether it's dementia or chronic illness. And quite often, it seems every week, I engage at least one conversation with someone about issues like that and what it takes to faithfully plod along day after day, caring in those needs. Faithfulness. To be faithful day after day in that. That faithfulness bears witness. It bears witness to the faithfulness of God. Now, here's the thing, you know what? None of these things are heroic, are they? None of these things stand out and say, yep, I'm the hero. None of these things put us in that position of now I'm on top and I'm the top dog. None of these things are about kingdom power, but they're all about being a witness, a witness to who God is and what God does. In that passage in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says that word, right, that you will receive power and you will be witnesses. That the Greek word there for witness, it's martaos. It's where we get the English word martyr. That's what God is calling his people to. The kind of witness that you are is a witness like a martyr. It's not about you winning. It's not about you being on top. It's not about you having all the power. It's about you giving so that your witness of emptying yourself shows the way that God emptied himself when Jesus went to the cross. That we live in a way that gives witness to what God has done. Not just in the words we say, but in how we live and in what we do. That is the mission that we've been called back to. So where does that play out for you today? Where are you being called to be a martyr? Where are you being called to maybe let go of some grasp of kingdom power? Where's there opportunity in your world this week to bear witness to Jesus? Let's pray together. God, thanks for your word and thanks for uh, what you show us in your word. Today, a correction, a correction that you gave to your apostles so long ago about redirecting what they thought was the mission and a message that we confess. We need to still hear this one today too. So Lord, 
correct our course, redirect us, that we may bear witness to you in how we live. Not trying to be the heroes, but in those everyday small things that we do that show love, generosity, patience, integrity, faithfulness. May you be seen through us when we do that. Lord, it's our desire to follow you in those steps. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.